Evangel Church, if you're new with us, we're so glad that you're here with us. And for those, I had somebody in the back while we were praying for offering see me holding these. And they asked me quietly, are you going to be hula hooping on stage? And the answer is no. So let's just put that to rest right now. So you're not distracted for the rest of our time together. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians. And if you're new with us, we've been, we've been in a series uh, called Colossians, the wonder of the gospel. And we're moving to Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. We're going step by step through the book of Colossians. And so if you're new with us and you don't have a Bible, we would love to get you a Bible. We have hard copy Bibles here. Just talk to us after the service. They're free. We'd love to just gift you a Bible from us to you. And if you have your phone, pull out, go to myevangel.church forward slash Bible. And there's a great Bible app you can download and use through the service today on your phone. But today we come to face to face with one of the most disputed and contentious verses in the book of Colossians. We're, we're going to read through the passage together. and Let's see if you can pull out what has been a point of contention among scholars and theologians and teachers over the years. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me. Colossians 1, verses 24 to 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that is given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, I struggle with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Did you catch it? Did you catch the verse that seemingly contradicts uh, many statements that Paul has made in, in much of his other writings? Did you catch it? For those of you that have been in the series since the beginning, at the very beginning of this series, we, if you go back to myevangel.church forward slash media, check out the first verse, the first sermon of this series. It was called An Introduction. And we talked about the importance of context. To look at a verse in its context of, of the whole and not just pull it out and isolate it and look at it alone. And this verse that we're going to talk about a little bit today is no exception. We have to look at it within context. And that verse is verse 24. Did you catch it? Did you kind of read through that and go, oh, wait a second. Paul, what are you saying here? Let's read it together. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. That's interesting. So what is, what is Paul saying here? Is, is Paul saying that somehow uh, the sacrifice of Jesus wasn't, wasn't enough? Well, what's he saying here? 
And it seems at first read that, that Paul is saying that, that he's making up for what Christ's sufferings didn't accomplish. But we know that this can't be the case because Paul is so clear. In, in, when we take the whole of his writings, when we take the whole of his teachings, Paul is so clear in all of his writings about the finished work of Jesus Christ. The finished work of Jesus. The salvation is found in Christ alone. And so what's going on here? And as I began to research this verse, I, I came to find that there's no theologian that I read anyway that made, took a hard stance on this verse. It's really interesting. Um, and so we, we really have to wrestle through this and wrestle through kind of what's going on. Just about every commentary and theologian that I read, however, spoke to the context of a Jewish rabbinic teaching and, and, and a cultural understanding of the first century. And there was, and there still is, among, among Jewish scholars anyway, a principle of a, among rabbinic teachers. Rabbis, rabbis were the teachers of the first century. Uh, and so they're the theologians, the, the, uh, the, the priests, as, as it were, the, uh, the teachers, the scholars. And this, the, the, the idea was this. It was called the messianic woes. The messianic woes. This idea came from the study of the Old Testament that before the coming of the Messiah, the Savior, there would be a great suffering that would endure that the people of, of the Jews would have to endure. And with the occupation of the Roman Empire, we know that was true. When Jesus came, the Jewish people were under great suffering. There were the, these messianic woes, almost like the pain of giving birth. That would be the metaphor that is being used in that. And the New Testament writers, it's so interesting because Paul, even himself, he studied under a, a man named Gamil. And he was a well-respected first century teacher of Jewish law. And, and he, he really captures, Paul even captures these messianic woes in his writings. It seems as Paul writes his letter, he recognizes that the Messiah did come during great suffering for the Jewish people and alludes to the fact that before Christ's second return, there too would be great suffering. These messianic woes, this idea of birthing something. Congratulations, by the way. Good job. N.T. Wright, N.T. Wright puts it this way, and I'm going to grossly paraphrase what he so eloquently says, and I'm going to use a bit of an illustration. But there's an Old and there's a New Testament idea, and, and, and when you read the New Testament and the Old Testament, you get this idea. Jesus talks about this. He talks about the kingdom that was, okay? The kingdom that was, and the kingdom to come, okay? And here was what the idea was among, among the, the rabbinic teachers of the day of the first century. The idea was this, that the kingdom that was was going to stand back to back with the kingdom to come. And the differentiator between the two kingdoms was going to be the Messiah. So the kingdom that was was going to lead up to the messianic woes the, 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 the birthing of the need for a Savior to come and save the people of Israel. And it would then usher in this kingdom, this kingdom to come, the kingdom that was promised. And these two kingdoms stood back to back. But what happened was Jesus came. And we believe Jesus was the Messiah. And he came 
But then he died. And he served humanity. And he didn't take a place of exaltation and position and sit on a throne and look like what they thought the Messiah would look like to usher in the new kingdom. Instead, he came and he served humanity. He died on the cross, shedding his blood for our sins, making us new in Christ Jesus. And then he rose again on the third day and then ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God to this day. So what happened was, and N.T. Wright says, here's where we get it wrong. These two kingdoms don't stand back to back with the Messiah be, being the differentiator between the two. Instead, we find ourselves in the overlap. We find ourselves in the overlap of two kingdoms, the kingdom that was and the kingdom to come. And when we've given our lives to Jesus, we still live in the kingdom that was. We still live in a broken world that is under the curse. But we are also citizens of the kingdom to come. We are also citizens of Christ's kingdom. And so they don't stand back to back. We live in the overlap of these two kingdoms. Paul writes in Romans 8, 16 to 17, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Spirit convinces us. When we come to Jesus, the Spirit's work in us is convince us that we are indeed children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him. In other words, the Spirit of God convinces us that we are indeed children of the age to come, even though we haven't seen the fullness of it yet. We often use the descriptor comforter by referencing the Holy Spirit. And part of why he's the comforter is because though we are, are new in Jesus, though we are part of this kingdom to come, we remain in the overlap. We re remain in a broken world. We remain in what was, the kingdom that was. Although we are convinced that we are part of the kingdom to come and the age to come. Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians 3, 10 to 11. He says this, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. By any means possible that I maintain and I'm a part of this kingdom to come in Christ Jesus. Paul is obsessed with that journey to the fullness of the age to come. The most prominent theory when it comes to this verse, verse 24, is this. That Paul is trying to say, like most of the, 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 the apostles, he believed that Jesus was going to come back in his lifetime. So those, those, those witnesses that saw Jesus ascend into heaven, and then, you know, Peter and James, all those guys, they thought Jesus was going to return in their generation, in their lifetime. And so they were about the business of the kingdom like none other. And they truly believed that. But the idea is Christ was no longer suffering at this time when Paul wrote this. We all know that Christ was now ascended. It was at this right, the, the right hand of God. He was in heaven. He was in the presence of his Father. He wasn't suffering at the hands of a broken world anymore. 
He had defeated death in the grave. He had defeated all of that which was the kingdom that was. And so Paul is saying, he's not talking about whether or not Jesus' death and resurrection was enough for salvation and life. No, he was referring to what he was talking about all along, that to say yes to Jesus is to enter into a level of sharing in his sufferings which continue until the day that Jesus returns. The sufferings that continue as we are still in the overlap of these two kingdoms. Paul's heart was for the return of Jesus. And if suffering, if the messianic woes for the second return of Jesus were an inevitable prequel to that event, he was happy to endure as much suffering as possible so that this fledgling church that he's writing to didn't have to. Paul saw his suffering through the lens of the mission he had given his life to and it drove him beyond for the sake of the church. I asked you a few weeks ago, what inspires you? What inspires you? Paul is the perfect example of a man who was inspired, a man who is set on fire with the anticipation of the return of Jesus and that kingdom to come being established, who endured beyond the capabilities, his own capabilities, and tapped into the strength and the grace of God because he believed in the mission he was on. This is a man set on fire. This is a man inspired. Let me summarize in the words of William Barclay, and I believe it will be on the screen. William Barclay says this about verse 24. Paul begins this passage with a daring thought. He thinks of the sufferings through which he is passing as completing the sufferings of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus died to save his church, but the church must be increased and extended. It must be kept strong and pure and true, therefore... Anyone who serves the church by widening its borders, establishing its faith, saving it from errors, is doing the work of Christ. And if in such service involves suffering and sacrifice, that affliction is filling up and sharing the very suffering of Christ. To suffer in the, pre- in the service of Christ is not a penalty, but a privilege, for it is sharing in His work. It is sharing in His work. This leaves us with some questions before we too hastily move on. The questions are these. Am I willing to endure discomfort for the sake of the mission of the gospel? Am I willing to endure suffering for the sake of the mission that I've been called to? Am I willing to with joy embrace the hardships of this age of overlap as one who knows that I'm a part of an age to come because of the finished work of Jesus in my life. What inspires you? And does that inspiration drive you to do whatever it takes for the mission? No matter the cost. No matter the pain. No matter the suffering that you may endure. To say yes to the mission. To say yes to sharing the journey of Jesus is to say yes to your greatest discomfort, suffering, and hardships while simultaneously saying yes to your greatest joys, fulfillments, and growth. They go hand in hand. This is what we've been called into. This is what we've been called into. And church, I'm afraid for me, even as I was reading and as I was doing this sermon, I'm so challenged even in my own life. Because we've been lulled to sleep 
We've been lulled to sleep to believe that this Christian faith is about our comfort. And praise you, Jesus, and thank you for saving me and bringing me into this beautiful family where I can be completely isolated and secure and safe. But really, the opposite is true. So Paul continues by essentially, he he begins to reveal his mission statement. And by extension, he begins to reveal our mission statement. Verse 25, he says, "Of Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that is given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Last week, Pastor Lisa spoke about the invisible God being made visible through his life and through his ministry and time on this earth. And Paul, he's speaking primarily to Gentiles here. The, 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 the church in Colossae would have been primarily Gentiles. If you're new to this language, a Gentile would basically be a non-Jew. So there's, there's two types of people. There's Jewish, the promised people, the people of promise. And then there's the Gentiles, everybody else who's not Jewish. All right? And God chose to reveal himself through the Jews over time and then transition to revealing himself now through Jesus Christ for the entire world, not just for the Jewish people. And he's opened it up. This path to salvation, this way of being made right before our Creator was a mystery to the Gentiles. And now it's made known now it's made known. It's like going to the club and you know that velvet rope and you got the big guy, right? It's like, it's like God, through Jesus, took the velvet rope away and now we all have access. Now we all have access to the simplicity of the gospel. And it's no longer this grand mystery, but rather the opposite is true. It's, 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 the grand mystery was a thing standing in the way, but now for so many, the grand mystery is no longer an issue. It's the simplicity of the gospel. It's the simplicity of the gospel now that trips so many people up. Notice verse 27 and 28 because it really speaks to this mission that Paul is on. And it reveals our part to play in the mission. Let's read it one more time. To them, verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. What was once a mystery is now made known, made plain by Christ in you. By Christ in you. Have you ever been downtown Seattle during a game day? A Seattle Seahawks game day? I keep on bringing up sports and football because nobody here is into it. So I, I figure if I just keep proselytizing uh, my favorite sport, that I might have some more people to invite over to my Super Bowl party next year. But have you ever been downtown Seattle on game day? It is absolutely nuts. Who, who's ever been down there on a game day? 
Okay, we got it. I, I, saw, I saw Brad shake it. He's like, yep. Like, no word of a lie. Everybody and their, and this isn't just a saying, everybody and their dog, and I mean literally, are wearing jerseys or blue and green. Because when it's game day in Washington State, you know it. Because everybody's got flags out and jerseys on and hats on, face painted. It's insane. You walk downtown when you're not in the game and something goes on in the game, all you can hear through the streets of downtown is the wash of 92,000 people just cheering or booing the refs, one of the two. (laughs) It's unbelievable. But you could transplant someone who has no point of reference of anything around sports. You could take an alien from Mars and stick them in downtown Seattle on game day and they would know something's up. They would know something's up. It wouldn't take them long to begin asking questions, what's going on? And they'd find out that the Seattle Seahawks are playing that day. But Paul, he says... He, God, has chosen to make known how great among you are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You are the walking billboard of this movement. You are the walking billboard of this movement to this age to come in Christ Jesus. Can you picture with me for a moment? Can you just... Just think about this. A community of people who rise up and say yes to the discomfort of this mission set before them. Can you just picture that? I, I actually, during, during the service, uh, during the song service, I actually started, someone, someone here made me cry a little bit. And it was simply this. This is all it was. This is all it was. Someone came into the service and you know how it is. You come into a service and it's hard to find seats. And, and when you come in, you don't want to walk up in front of everybody. By the way, you want to create safe places for people to explore faith in Jesus, ex- uh, encounter his love and look more and more like him each day? You know what you can do just practically? Church, friends, move up two rows. No, I'm serious. Move up two rows. And leave the back for those who maybe never been in church before and they're going to feel much more comfortable sitting in the back than coming up in front of everybody. You want to serve? You want to serve the mission in a practical way? Move up a couple rows. Next Sunday, I want to see this front row filled up. But here's what happened. Someone came in, and they, they got into a row, and there wasn't enough room. And one of our seniors, I watched them, one of our seniors went to them and said, no, no, you sit here. And they took their jacket, and they took their stuff, and they moved and made space, made room, created a safe place. I literally started crying. I literally started crying because are you willing, are you willing to endure a little bit of discomfort for this mission that you're on? Imagine with me a Powell River region that is inundated with people who serve others to the point of their own discomfort and maybe even to the point of their own suffering. A community where this mystery of the gospel and the answers to what life is all about become accessible because people have proximity to you. And you have been intentional about being a safe place. 
of making space for people. Believers in Jesus who live in such a way that they are safe places where everyone and anyone can explore faith in Jesus and encounter his love because they know you. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine walking around this region when you have an army of those who have been transformed by the life-changing love of Jesus? We don't have to wear a jersey. We don't have to put on clothing to, to show that we're different. In Jesus, we are different. We're called to live different. We're called to love different. It's Christ in you, shining through you, that is going to make the difference in this world. My name is Lucas. My name is Lucas. I don't know if you know what Lucas means. Lucas literally means bearer of light. Bearer of light. When we come to, 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 to terms with the reality that you are bearers of light, and that's not just as a metaphor, and here's where we get it wrong, church. We think of that as a great metaphor. That's a great metaphor for Jesus in us. That's not a metaphor. The light of the world resides in you. It's not a metaphor, it's literal. This is the reality. The Spirit of God manifests the light of Jesus in you and through you. This is a metaphorical language, this is literal. We are different because Jesus has made us new creations in him. We are part of the age to come. And Paul gets it. That's why he concludes with this statement, with an understanding of this reality. Verse 29, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Whose energy? God's energy, God's anointing, the Spirit of God working powerfully in and through you. Listen, friends, for too long we have read passages like these and we've treated them as nice metaphors. Really good object lessons, but there's, there's, there's a reality at play in you that you haven't even begun to understand. Jesus, the light of the world, dwells in you. He has changed you, and he lives in you, and he's manifested in and through you by the Spirit of God. Come on, do you believe that? Because I have to remind myself every day I have to remind myself every day that I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. All things, the old things have been passed away. That old age and that old kingdom has been passed away. Behold, all things have been made new. I have to remind myself every day that I am called with a purpose, with a mission set before me. Because I can't trust my feelings. Because my feelings will tell me that I'm no good. My feelings will tell me that I'm not worthy. My feelings will tell me that I don't have what it takes to pursue this mission that I feel called to. But the truth is, Christ in me. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Can you envision with me a church 
that gets that. Really gets that. A church that stops speaking in terms of metaphorical language. A nice idea, a good object lesson, but really digs into the reality of Christ in us. The hope of glory, the mystery of the gospel now made plain and accessible to everyone we come into contact with. Can you imagine a church that rises up in their God-given calling and reaches out with love, sacrifice, discomfort, even suffering for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's a movement that's unstoppable. That's a movement that Jesus started over 2,000 years ago and is still going to this day with momentum like anything we've ever seen in the history of humanity and ideology and ideas. Christ in you, the hope of glory. When you begin to declare this, Romans, Romans 8, 11 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, who, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. When you begin to b- declare this over your physical body, we often we call it the flesh, that part of you that would rather, would rather shut up than put up. That part of you that would rather remain silent than declare Him from the mountaintops. That part of you that would, would rather just live out your days quietly until you see Jesus. When we begin to declare and engage the spirit of life that has changed us and is renewing us, it begins to change everything. And the people around us will begin to change. The atmosphere of every place that we step into will begin to change because we begin to own this mission that we've been called to. And we begin to understand the dutimous power, the power of the spirit that dwells in us. That's how we shift culture. That's how we change the world. That's how you change your workplace and your neighborhoods. That's how you change those that you love that are far from Jesus, but you love them desperately, and you're willing to do whatever it takes to see them come into this new kingdom that Jesus has given us access to. I'm going to call the worship team at this time. And I just want to speak a blessing over you because I really truly believe it is a blessing. And then we're going to just sing a prayer. We're going to sing a prayer together. So may you find his strength to say yes to the discomfort and the suffering of the mission that's set before you. May you find life and fulfillment juxtaposed to the struggle and the pain. May you know the joy of literally being a bearer of light everywhere that you go. And may the world around you know that they have found a safe place to explore faith, ask questions, and the Lord willing encounter the life-changing power of Jesus for themselves because they are in proximity to you. Friends, in this time of the overlap between two kingdoms, the one that was and the kingdom to come, saying yes to Jesus means both bearing your cross 
and wearing your crown. May you learn to bear your cross in his strength and wear your crown to his glory. Let's pray.